0: This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. In 2019, climate rose to the top of the national agenda.
1: We have the Green New Deal and we have Green New Deal projects.
0: I am the only candidate who's saying this has to be the top priority of the United States.
2: My message is that we'll be watching you.
0: Youth activists skipped school and spoke truth to power, while Democrats, and even a few Republicans, competed on climate policies more than
3: ever before. You can either believe the climate deniers or you can believe your lion eyes, and I'm from the pro-science wing of the Republican Party. The risks are high, but so are the hopes.
4: Our task is to fuel our fear into passion, and I tell myself every day that there's no other option but to win this fight.
0: The Year in Climate Conversations, up next on Climate One. Hey everyone, I have an exciting announcement. We recently secured a gift of $15,000 to match all donations given by the end of the year. As a fully self-funded project of the Commonwealth Club, we rely on supporters like you to bring this podcast to you every week. To support more climate conversations like this one, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to climateone.org donate. Your gift of any amount will be doubled. Thank you for listening and for your support. Now for this week's pod. Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. On this special episode, we look back at the climate stories of 2019 by listening to excerpts from a year of conversations, beginning in a U.S. Senator's office.
4: Our earth is dying, literally. And it is gonna be a pricey and ambitious plan that is needed to deal with the magnitude of that issue. And so we're here asking you to vote yes on the resolution for the Green New Deal because that is the only that, that is That worth- resolution will
5: not pass the Senate and you can take that back to whoever sent you here Why and he tell them. Because it doesn't have a single Republican vote. And the Republicans control the United States Senate.
0: That's Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein talking to Isha Clark, a high school student and activist in Oakland, California, who is confronting the senator over the Green New Deal. That video went viral, and later Isha described how that situation unfolded, starting with a rally in the street outside the senator's office in San Francisco.
4: There was a crowd of about 100 people, very lively, very passionate, and I spoke, and it was great. And um, there were some kids, or youth activists, excuse me, from (laughs) Bay Area, very important, from Bay Area (laughs) Earth Guardians crew who wanted to present a letter that they had written to Senator Feinstein. And they invited all the young people who were there to go up and present the letter. And just for some reason, she happened to be in her San Francisco office that day. And they invited us up after some pushback. And Here you have the renowned Senator Feinstein interaction.
0: (laughs) Senator Feinstein issued a tweet, a statement thereafter, saying, I want the children from the Sunrise Movement to know they were heard loud and clear. I've been and remain committed to doing everything I can to enact real, meaningful climate change legislation. So Isha Clark, tell us what it was like to go stand there toe to toe with uh, (laughs) a political legend in California.
4: You know, I think for me, it was less about the actual interaction and what happened after that. Then what happened after that? There was, I felt, accountability to what just happened. And for me, as a young person, as a person of color, I'm kind of used to people talking to me like that. Let's just be real. And so when I was in that interaction, I didn't really recognize how disturbing it was until I saw that the video hit 10 million views on Twitter and was all over CNN and all over the news. And for me, it was really powerful to have my voice become such an important weight in politics and media. And, you know, I think the conversation now isn't really about Senator Feinstein anymore. And it's really about politicians in general and power holders in general who aren't and haven't been taking the necessary steps to reverse this climate crisis.
0: You've also said uh, that Senator Feinstein learned and gained some respect for you. How do you think it affected her?
4: You know, I hope that all of that is true. And the, you know, the reality is that we I don't really know how she responded to the interaction, and I would love to have a conversation with her if she's willing about next steps to um, proceed in a more productive manner. Um, I hope that in watching the reaction of that interaction, <laughs> she, uh, like you said, learned from it and realized the power of her voice, especially to young people, to the future generations. And though she's been an extremely powerful force in American politics, that there's still things that she could have done that she didn't. Or, you know, and that goes for her peers as well. And so I think that conversation needs to be had about holding our politicians, even who were powerful people, accountable, because there's always something more that can be done.
0: How did this sudden fame affect you? You were on uh, Amy Goodman, which is like, wow. You know, how yeah. did that, you know, how did the, how did this being suddenly? I mean, you're you're a junior in high school being yeah. thrust into this national spotlight. What was that like?
4: It was crazy. (laughs) I mean, I know I'm dope. I love myself. And I like, it was dope. Thank you. It was really cool to have Amy Goodman in my earpiece. That was crazy. And, you know, getting all of this attention. And I'm just a kid from Oakland. And now I'm like on national news. And some people know who my name is and are like listing it next to AOC. Like, that's crazy. But I, I think that. For me, what was important from that wasn't my fame, but my new platform, and like that I can actually use my voice in a way that is impacting people who can make real policy change, can make the change that I've been wanting for so long. And so I just feel grateful to be able to have had and hopefully continue to have the spotlight to have my voice heard in a way that's really impactful and meaningful.
0: You you say that um, respect is very important to you. You take it to every place you go. And yet there you were kind of interrupting a a, a senator. You know, how do you challenge power (laughs) by being respectful? Mm -hmm. Is, Is there a contradiction? Can you do both?
4: You know, I think that truth is respectful. And that you can speak truth in a way that is compassionate and authentic. And to me, that is respect. And... You know, I recognize that she is a well-respected politician. She is an elder in the community and that I was to address her accordingly. But at the same time, I felt a responsibility to tell her the truth and to bring the truth to her. And if she was gonna ignore the truth, that I had to continue to push my voice and to make sure that my voice was being heard in a space that she was trying to bring that down in.
0: Student activist Isha Clark, who gained recognition earlier in 2019 for a viral video in which she and other youth activists confront Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein over the Green New Deal. That resolution, co-sponsored by New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey, is largely responsible for the greater focus on climate this election cycle. Last spring, I spoke with Senator Markey, a 73-year-old member of the Democratic establishment, and asked him what it was like working on the Green New Deal with AOC, who is challenging the party's status quo and, at 30, is young enough to be his granddaughter.
6: We share a passion uh, to uh, create a movement which is going to change the relationship between the American people and the fossil fuel industry, their power, their money, Their ability to distort what happens in Washington just has to change. And so what uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and I agreed upon in introducing the Green New Deal was that we were going to try to lift the gaze of Americans to the constellation of possibilities in terms of deploying uh, clean energy technologies, creating millions of jobs— Uh, and finally, once and for all, wresting the power in Washington away from the fossil fuel industry and their control uh, over the climate agenda for the planet.
0: There's some resistance coming from within your own party. Barney Frank, longtime progressive colleague of yours, said the Green New Deal was a loser in 2020 and said that society could only absorb so much change at once. What do you say to that, that this is too ambitious?
6: Well, the polling says that climate, along with health care, is now at the top of the interests, especially of Democratic primary voters in our country. Uh, and I think that what we're going to find is that it's becoming a voting issue. The intensity level is very high. Uh, and that increasingly Republicans are going to understand that they are going to vote against the solar and wind and all electric vehicle revolution at their own political peril. So I think there's something very special that's happening. We can see it, especially in young people at the high school and college level. Mm. Uh, We can see it all around the world, actually. Millions of young people are now marching. It it has an intensity that I think is going to make a big, big difference in the 2020 election cycle.
0: So are you really, what's your plan for the Green New Deal? Is it to lay foundation, to develop policy? So obviously nothing's going to happen with uh, climate denier in the White House. What's your plan for the next couple of years? What are you trying to do?
6: Well, you are right. The denier-in-chief is sitting in the White House. He says that it's a Chinese hoax. So politically, we could hope that he could change his mind in the next year and a half. But it's more likely he's going to continue to try to use the remaining 50,000 coal miners in America as a proxy for how he fights for blue-collar workers in our country. And we care about those coal miners, and we want to ensure that there's a just transition for them. But at the same time, what we're going to do is make the case that we've already created 350,000 wind and solar jobs, that there are millions of clean energy jobs um, writ large already in our economy, and that there are millions more to be created and that the economic argument is absolutely overwhelming and the moral imperative uh, is equally compelling. So I I feel very confident that if we are more aggressive – If we lean into the issue, if we're willing to stand up and fight for it all across the country on campuses, out of town meetings in the suburbs, there are people now rising up who weren't there in 2016 who are going to make the voting difference in the next uh, in the next election.
0: Who on the Republican side do you see as parties that you can deal with on this issue? A lot of the moderates uh, are gone. Carlos Corbello, who started the Climate you know, Solutions Caucus, was lost to a Democrat. Lamar Alexander introduced an R&D bill, but he also heaped ridicule on the Green New Deal. He's a moderate. Um, do you have people on the other side that even perhaps privately will you think you can do business with on climate?
6: Some Republicans are bringing out old ideas for more incentives for nuclear power and carbon capture and sequestration. Mm -hmm. But we have yet to hear people say that they would support permanent tax breaks for wind and solar and for all electric vehicles and for battery and storage technology. So we haven't heard that yet. So only at that point is it uh, reasonable uh, to say that Republicans are moving uh, towards a position where we can put together a bipartisan bill that um, would in fact make a meaningful difference in terms of reducing greenhouse gases u.s senator ed
0: markey one of the co-sponsors of the green new deal you're listening to a year of climate one conversations coming up we'll hear more about the prospects for bipartisan progress on climate
2: we went from having four or five republicans in the house who were even willing to acknowledge uh, this issue to having 45 join the Climate Solutions Caucus, acknowledge that this is a real threat and that the government has a role in solving it. That's up next when Climate One continues.
0: We continue now with a look back at a year of Climate One conversations. I'm Greg Dalton. David Gergen is a political analyst and former presidential advisor who served in the administrations of Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. When we spoke earlier this year, I asked him what changes he's seen in the politics of climate since the 2018 midterm elections.
7: Well, I think the politics have changed dramatically. If you look at both parties, they have not taken in the presidential elections in the past, they have not taken climate as seriously as they might to our, I think, everybody's surprise. As I recall in the debates of 2016 with Hillary and Trump, I'm not sure that anybody ever asked them a climate question. And think of that, there were like three debates, and nobody asked the question. And now it's not always on the top of mind, but it's certainly mostly on the top of mind for Americans. I think that's in significant part because of the storms and the fires and and what people have seen. And Almost every American now has a friend who's been affected.
0: So it's on the agenda. You know, some people might say also it's Alexandra Ocasio Cortez who's who has been a vehicle for that. Um, how do you see this playing out from now? Um, de- Democrats don't really agree on on how ambitious to be, and you know what's the Republican alternative?
7: Well, I, it, it seems to me Alexandra Ocasio Cortez uh, has really has greatly heightened interest and heightened focus on climate, and you have to give her credit for that. Um, I do think there's a danger for the Democratic Party if it embraces uh, the the entire Green New Deal uh, in all of its uh, glory, <laughs> because it's about much more than climate. It's also about transforming our society and the equity and, and dealing with the inequities in our society, all of which is to be uh, appreciated. But if you adopt that as your platform as opposed to your aspirations— you then have to tell people how you're going to pay for it, and that is so mind blowing. I, th- I think the Democratic Party has been wise. I think Nancy Pelosi has been wise uh, to focus on the climate aspects of the plan and not on the other. To to put the uh, the rest of it uh, into a secondary category or on a back burner, as they sometimes say in politics, but to focus on you know what we need to do by 2025. Or within a 20-year period, and whether we can get back into Paris and whether we can look at something like the Baker-Schultz plan. You know, there are other alternatives now which I think need to be on the public uh, uh, agenda uh, to debate.
0: Some people, environmental justice advocates, would hear that and say, oh, you're asking for us to, to wait again, as we so often do, while the affluent people, coastal people solve their concerns and the the people of color have to take a back seat again. And I think some environmental justice advocates I've interviewed would say, well, we, we're, I, I, we're not going to take a back seat in the green economy like we did in the brown economy.
7: Listen, I, I, with all due respect, uh, I, I don't think people who are living in California who got chased out of their homes, many of whom died, were elites. Um, mm-hmm. The people in uh, Iowa who are farming and along the Missouri River, where the the walls are crumbling and the water is you know flooding the uh, states, these are not uh, you know elites. I, I don't think the question is the elites versus everybody else. The question is, what can we do rapidly that would alleviate this and be fair to all? And, and obviously that includes people who are living in in urban areas that are you know like a Flint, Michigan, um, and we have to deal with that as well. But you you have to be realistic about how you're going to pay for things, and if you want to do Medicare for all, you want to have free college for everybody, and you want to do all these climate uh, issues. If you if you don't have priorities, you find you got nothing done. You know, let's take it one step at a time and get it done. We've been arguing and arguing. Everybody knows the Republicans have been you know, hopelessly uh, uh, dismissive of science, but we we need a we need the country to come together and do some serious things in the next four years, or it's going to be too late.
0: So some combination of the Green New Deal and the Baker-Schultz plan, something... Yeah, is something... Space?
7: You're certainly green. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure the New Deal part. That's what I'm questioning uh, because I think it's, you know, these are aspirationally t- terrific. But if the planet is, is sort of burning up... And listen, this is an international concern now. It's, it has it risen not just in the U.S., but it's... And, and we are seen by the rest of the world increasingly as holding things up. Um, but uh, I, I was in Davos in Switzerland this, this January for the World Economic Forum. They take an annual survey. It's, it's CEOs from all over the world, a lot, of, a lot of heavyweights come there, and they take a survey about what are your biggest concerns. For four years in a row, it has been the climate, number one concern of CEOs and others around the world. And very importantly, if you looked at the top five concerns of, of people in Davos this year, four of them were about climate and the environment. Water. So this is a deep-seated response to a, uh, an accumulating problem. I, I just can't tell you, when, when historians look back, if we're not careful, the Trump saga is going to be like a little footnote. And and the big story is going to be, where in the hell were you people when the world was you know, threatened that way? Former presidential advisor and CNN commentator
0: David Gergen on climate politics, public opinion, and the Republican Party today's U.S. EPA has been pursuing a different set of priorities than it did under previous administrations, including Republican ones. At his Senate confirmation hearings, the current EPA administrator, Andrew Wheeler, said that climate change was not the greatest risk facing humanity, but somewhere around an 8 or 9 on a scale of 10. When I spoke with him earlier this year, I asked what the current administration is doing to address the climate challenge.
8: Um, We're moving forward with our ACE proposal, the Affordable Clean Energy Act which will reduce CO2 from the electric power segment. Um, We're also moving forth our CAFE standard, which will also reduce CO2. Um, On the ACE proposal, um, it's projected to get 33 to 34% reduction in CO2 from the electric power sector over the the life of the regulation.
0: Though, I think there was a Harvard study that that questioned whether that uh, will really reduce CO2 compared to the Obama Clean Power Plan, which I think that's trying to replace.
8: Well, you got to remember though the Obama clean power plan never took effect. It was mm-hmm. stayed by the Supreme Court because in my opinion it went outside the Clean Air Act. So it's really hard to to compare apples and oranges when you have a regulation that is was never implemented outside the jurisdiction of the of the agency and the outside the authority of the Clean Air Act versus a proposed regulation that follows the law, follows the Supreme Court precedents and will reduce CO2.
0: So a lot of this was really about coal. Coal production, coal capacity in the United States is about down about a third from 2010. Uh, banks, insurance companies, hedge funds are all moving away from coal, as you well know. What is the you know? Do you really think that that easing regulations on coal will help bring back an industry that's? in decline for lots of reasons.
8: Well, I think the important thing here is that we're not tipping the scales. The Obama administration tipped the scales away from coal. It's not the job of the EPA, the authority of the EPA, to pick winners and losers between the different fuel sources, and that would be either Department of Energy or FERC or even you know, more likely the state PUCs our job is to set the regulations that govern the industry and and that's what we're doing and it's and we believe we have a responsible regulation that will reduce co2 from the electric power segment in um, following both the clean air act and the massachusetts versus epa decision
0: though there was an effort to require uh, utilities to stockpile a bunch of coal which was even the, the federal energy regulatory commission didn't didn't go there that seems like a a pretty clear effort to TO HELP COAL BY REQUIRING POWER PLANTS to, TO stockpile COAL?
8: WELL, YOU KNOW, that THAT IS OUTSIDE THE AUTHORITY OF THE EPA. AND I KNOW THE DEPARTMENT OF ENERGY AND, and FERC WERE LOOKING INTO THOSE ISSUES. I DO THINK, YOU KNOW, AS FAR AS THEIR AUTHORITIES ARE CONCERNED, I, I THINK IT'S IMPORTANT TO MAKE SURE THAT WE HAVE A BALANCE OF FUEL um, SOURCES IN ORDER TO MAKE SURE THAT WE HAVE ELECTRIC POWER FOR EVERYONE ACROSS THE COUNTRY. BUT AGAIN, THAT'S NOT THE ROLE OF THE EPA. AND UNDER THE Obama ADMINISTRATION, um, THE EPA REALLY TOOK THAT ON AS THEIR ROLE, WHICH IS NOT what the EPA was set up to do. Then what is
0: the way if you say climate change is an 8 or a 9, you know, I heard you talk about the affordable clean energy plan. What are the other ways to tackle climate change because we're seeing storms, fires and deaths in California. Storms are more severe. It's getting very expensive to
8: well, it's, it is a global issue, it's a global problem that needs to be addressed globally, but not through a mechanism such as the Paris Climate Accord, which is really unfair to the United States, United States um, manufacturers, United States citizens, compared to the people who live in China or India or other countries. So if, if you're going to address it, it has to be done globally. But um, also equally important is looking at adaptation and making sure that when, when a natural disaster strikes, that we, re- we rebuild in order to sustain a, a larger storm surge. Um, as far as the California fires, I believe the unofficial name is the Little Hoover Institute here in California that um, drafted the report based upon the, on the fires, and they blame the forest management practices of the last 100 years more than climate change. And I think it's important not to lose sight of that aspect, because we really do need to have better forest management um, in order to stop the, the wild destructive fires that we've seen in recent years.
0: There's forest management, but the, I've interviewed some of the firefighters who say that's, you know, high winds, hot temperatures, a lot of fuel, uh, low precipitation, lots of things kind of combined. Right. No single but we factor. Can't,
8: but we can't say that this is just because of climate change, which a number of people try to do.
0: Sure. Um, but it's, would you say that it's amplified or turbocharged by, but not caused by, you know, like any one of Barry Bonds. Home how, do, runs. how do
8: you define turbocharged? <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's a factor.
0: Right. We say here in San Francisco that we know that um, you can't attribute any one of Barry Bond's home runs to uh, juicing. But we know that some (laughs) of those 750 uh, home runs wouldn't have happened uh, without steroids. (laughs) Um, So last word in terms of, you know, going forward, do you feel a sense of urgency on climate change or is this something that technology will solve and we have time to, to work on?
8: I have a lot of faith in technology. When I said at my hearing that climate change is not the biggest crisis we face worldwide on the environmental side, I think our biggest crisis is on water and potable water and the fact that we have a million children and people dying a year from lack of sanitary, um, clean, san- drinking water. clean drinking water. Right, exactly. I think that is a huge crisis. If we spend a fraction of what we're spending on climate change to provide those people with safe drinking water, we'd be saving a million lives a year. That is a crisis today.
0: That's US EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. You're listening to a year of Climate One Conversations. I'm Greg Dalton. Despite the fossil fuel heavy policies of the current administration, some Republicans have gotten out ahead of their party on climate. Carlos Corbello represented Florida's 26th Congressional District from 2015 to 2019. While serving in the House, he co-founded the bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus. He told the Climate One audience that for the South Florida community he represented, the issue was very close to home.
2: In my community, uh, an area uh, that is uh, at about sea level and where most people live near the sea, Uh, the threat is real it's imminent Uh, we get tidal flooding Uh, our drinking water supply is threatened by uh, saltwater intrusion so that's why I decided to get involved and uh, in 2015 when I got to Congress uh, there were maybe three or four Republicans in the house who were even willing to acknowledge uh, climate change this reality that we're facing and Uh, having a lot of one-on-one conversations and starting the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus, which was the first uh, of its kind, an effort to establish a dialogue and then cooperation between Republicans and Democrats in Congress, we really started changing things. So I I think uh, we bottomed out, at least uh, uh, when it comes to Congress in 2014-15. I think things are headed in the right direction now. Uh, We just need to accelerate the process because time is running out.
0: Right, and Carlos Cobello, will often talk about, oh, we can't ch- do this uh, ch- fix because it will cost too much, but people don't think about the cost of not fixing it, right? right. We had Harvey, Maria, Irma, Midwest floods, oh yeah, Florence and the Carolinas, and I, I mean, we're up over $100 billion in damages for these things, not entirely caused by climate, but partly. So how do you address the cost of inaction and the cost of action? Because it's always the cost of action that seems to be too much.
2: Right, and that's because, well, there's a, a natural disaster economy which just passes a supplemental bill and then that solves everything. Uh, but you know, a lot of people don't realize we're, we're paying for that. I mean, that's those are resources that we won't be able to use either today or in the future on education, on transportation, and all the other national priorities. So I would spend a lot of time in my district just educating voters. And I think everyone in elected office needs to educate voters and and those of us who care about this issue activists as well we need to spend time educating voters with the mindset that we're trying to convince them not lecture them or shame them because i think that's the most effective way to bring people to our side and your you think star- democrats do that sometimes well look with all of these controversial issues Everyone has a choice, right? We can either exploit the issue for maximum political benefit, or we can work toward solutions. And that doesn't mean you can't do both, because obviously come campaign season, there are contrasts to be drawn. But I think especially after campaigns, we need to find ways to work together. And the truth is, of course, Republicans are responsible, because for two decades, they've just balked on the issue completely, but in some ways, I think Democrats and some liberal groups have been complicit because they've doubled down on this dynamic in our country where Republicans uh, don't want to be part of the solution, don't want to have a conversation, and Democrats want to own the issue entirely. We live in a country where the founding fathers established a government that's designed to work by consensus. And what I tried to do During my four years in Congress is to try to build out that coalition from the middle out. Uh, I think we made a lot of progress. We went from having four or five Republicans in the House who were even willing to acknowledge uh, this issue to having 45 join the Climate Solutions Caucus, acknowledge that this is a real threat and that the government has a role In solving it.
0: So the Climate Solutions Caucus, uh, 21 of the Republicans did not return from 18 to 19. 13 of them lost. So, you know, that caucus that you built has been pretty well damaged. Now, no new Democrats can join. Republicans can join. So is all the wind out of the sails of that? You kind of built this coalition and now a a lot of them got blown out in the midterms.
2: Well, uh, certainly a lot of Republicans retired and others uh, were were defeated in 2018. But uh, the ones that remain, I think there are 23 Republicans still uh, in the caucus are recruiting new members. And although it's um, an option to abandon the Noah's Ark rule, I don't think we should do it. Uh, The Noah's Ark rule, for those who have no idea what I'm talking about and are uh, thinking, you know, back thousands of years ago, it just means that uh, to join the caucus, uh, if you were a Republican, you needed to find a Democrat who would join with. you. If you were a Democrat, you needed to find a Republican. And let me tell you, I think that was the best thing we did, because that sparked hundreds of casual conversations between Republicans and Democrats about this issue. Now, of course, some a lot of the people wouldn't join, but they were kind of forced to have a dialogue to explain to their colleagues why they would join or not join. And, and of course, many of them ended up joining. And again, I it, it's you know, we all put our jerseys on uh, come a campaign season. But I think if we are going to address uh, these big challenges, climate change, I think being the greatest one our country faces, we need to have these conversations, we need to create healthy political environments where these solutions can get done.
0: Carlos curbello Republican member of Congress from South Florida from 2015 to 2019. Though curbello lost his seat, more Republicans are finding that they ignore the topic of climate change at their peril. Meanwhile, Democrats, trying to capture their party's presidential nomination, are competing for the boldest plan to invest in clean energy and confront the climate challenge. Washington Governor Jay Inslee created a foundation for many of those plans until dropping out of the race in August. The mantle of climate candidate was then taken up by billionaire activist Tom Steyer.
9: If you think about actually dealing with climate in the real world, it's a global problem. If we do a perfect job in the United States on January 21st, 2021, the day the new president is sworn in, it's not nearly enough. You know, if you look at what we have to do, we have to lead a coalition of countries around the world to solve this problem. And the question is, why would they ever listen to the United States of America unless we've got our house in order? It's an emergency. Treat it like an emergency. It's got to be people based. Every single thing that I've learned over the last 10 years about running propositions and getting votes, about coming up with fair policies, about putting together any kind of responsible Democratic coalition involves being a grassroots oriented movement. And so if you're not doing that, in my mind, you're going to have the wrong policy and you're not going to win. And so if you're just talking about the United States and policies that you hope to get voted in at some point in the future, I don't think that's nearly enough. To be honest, Greg, you talk
0: about pragmatism, what can get done and the Green New Deal. Some people even on the left have criticized the Green New Deal for being fuzzy, overly ambitious. And so is the Green New? First of all, it's a resolution. It's aspirational. It's not a bill. There are not our specifics there. You think you can get something that big through that fast?
9: So. I don't know how many of the people in the audience or the people listening have actually read the Green New Deal proposal. It's about five pages. It's very broad, and I think that's absolutely appropriate. If you're talking about rebuilding and changing the economy, then you have to understand it's not a siloed policy issue. It's something that goes across issues and that touches many different parts of the economy in the country. And I think the Green New Deal fits the answer to the scope of the problem, I think is very responsible in the way that it addresses this problem broadly. And I'm a big fan of it. It is just a proposal and a guideline. But I think that it got a lot of attention in a very good way. And it was vilified by the right wing press. You know, the Fox Newses of the world, the Breitbart's that exaggerated what it was to try and make it seem like something that it isn't. It's actually a very responsible and thoughtful document that I think pushed this debate forward in many ways. I'm a big fan. And one thing that
0: the Green New Deal that other green plans didn't do is it addressed some issues of capitalism, we, uh, wealth distribution, uh, jobs, et cetera. Do you really think that that is at the root of it? Because some people would say, hey, climate's so big and serious and urgent. Let's tackle that and we'll get to some of those other things later because we can't do it all at once. Our, you know, our nation can only absorb so much change at once. So can you address capitalism and climate at the same time?
9: Well, I think that if you're talking about rebuilding the United States, you're going to have to put that. I mean, in our plan, it's $2 trillion of government money over 10 years, plus a bunch of regulations and rules like building codes, like EV requirements, like the renewable portfolio standards. So changing the way we do business broadly in this country so that the $2 trillion of expenditure by the government will be dwarfed by how much the private sector spends. So if you're going to do that, you're going to rebuild this country. I think it's important to reflect on how that's going to be done in a fair way and in a way that will make us richer, better employed, grow faster, be healthier. As a business person, I can tell you the common response of people who are trying to deny climate and prevent progress is to say we have a choice between a healthy economy and a healthy environment. And that is an absolute lie. That's a false choice. We are going to have a healthier economy and a healthier environment. If you look at the cost of renewables versus the cost of fossil fuels on a per kilowatt hour basis, renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels and will continue to get cheaper. So when people talk about, oh, it's going to be bad for the economy because the cost of energy will be higher, the opposite is true we can create lower-cost energy without even talking about the health costs of old-fashioned pollution from coal or the climate costs of the pollution of putting CO2 in the atmosphere.
0: Democratic presidential candidate Tom Steyer speaking at Climate One earlier this year. You're listening to a year of climate conversations. Coming up, assessing the risks and finding hope.
1: We view the solutions as a greater threat than the impacts, whereas in actual fact, it's exactly the opposite. There are many beneficial solutions that can increase the quality of life, but the impacts are here today and they're bad.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to a year of Climate One Conversations. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate gentrification can turn a city's poorest neighborhoods into some of the most desirable real estate around. As people are attracted to areas of lower vulnerability, property developers see an opportunity. Earlier this year, I spoke with Valencia Gunder, a community organizer and climate educator in Miami, where the billion-dollar Magic City project is threatening to transform the neighborhood of Little Haiti. She told us about the very real effects of climate gentrification felt by Miami's poor communities. To see the impacts firsthand, Valencia took me out for a walking tour of Little Haiti.
5: So right now we're on Northeast 2nd Avenue and 59th Street in Little Haiti, which is like Little Haiti's downtown. We're standing right in front of the um, Caribbean Marketplace, which is attached to the Little Haiti Culture Arts Center. It's surrounded by Haitian-owned businesses, small businesses and things like that. Um, Colorful, Um, you can hear the Caribbean music, you can smell the Caribbean food. You see the Caribbean folks here being great.
0: So we're we're looking at some uh, storefronts, uh, recently closed storefronts. What are they,
5: what used to be there, what happened? So they were small business um, businesses, Haitian-owned businesses that used to be there. A few months ago, they were all evicted at the same time. They all closed their doors on the same day. They tried to fight it um, as a community. The community tried to step up, but they just could not do it because the building is actually owned by somebody else. They couldn't. They can't afford to stay there. And quite honestly. These new developers and investors don't want those type of restaurants or businesses in their community now. But that is something that the people of Little Haiti or just communities of color come to Little Haiti for in the first place. Right. The culture, Mm -hmm. the fact that we can get Haitian food here, get Haitian culture here. And honestly, they're taking it away. They're stripping it away. So Little Haiti won't even be Little Haiti anymore because all of the businesses are leaving and all the culture is leaving and all the residents are leaving. So what's happening is um, we're starting to see transients, Northeastern folks moving down to Miami. We're starting to see a lot of tech industry coming to Miami. We're starting to see a lot of people from the beach come over to Little Haiti, and they are actually whitewashing the culture in communities like Little Haiti, um, because it's no Little Haiti unless you have Haitian people with Haitian culture. So they are literally wiping it away little bit by little bit by displacing the business owners and the residents.
0: Valencia Gunder, a climate change educator and founder of Make the Homeless Smile in South Miami. Even for people who are not directly threatened by rising seas, climate change is shrinking the livable world. In his book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming, author David Wallace-Wells describes how he became aware and afraid of what humankind is doing to itself.
3: I'm 36 years old. I was raised mostly in the 90s. I had a very end of history perspective on the future. I thought, you know, I knew that markets were imperfect and globalization was imperfect and the future was not going to be endless bounty for everyone on Earth if, But I also felt that we could probably count on it getting better. Um, And I thought that climate change was going to be part of that story. That it was a major issue, but also one that was within our power to address and control. And that probably the leaders that we had would be responsible enough to take care of it. Um, I also felt that the story was a long one. I had sort of been led to believe, like I think a lot of us, that climate change was a really slow moving phenomenon. And that meant that we didn't need to take dramatic action quickly. We could develop our way out of the problem. We could invent our way out of the problem. When I realized just a year or two ago that, you know, half of all of the emissions that we've put into the atmosphere in the entire history of humanity have been put into that atmosphere in the last 30 years, that really, really opened my eyes. It made me think this is not something unfolding in the life that will unfold in the lifetime of my grandchildren. It's something that's unfolding in my lifetime. In fact, has already unfolded in my lifetime. When I was born, the planet's climate was relatively stable. Scientists were worried about the long term, but in the near term, things were OK. We're now at a situation where we're basically face to face with real climate catastrophe. And that is because of what's been done just in 30 years. Um, the next 30 are promised. They promised to be just as consequential. And we could, in those 30 years, choose to take a path that produces some incredibly terrifying, depressing, punishing climate impacts, or one that allows us to avoid at least most of those impacts and secure a kind of more fulfilling and prosperous and just future for ourselves and our children. And the scale of that story remains astonishing and kind of invigorating to me as a storyteller. It's an epic saga. It's the kind of thing that we only used to see in mythology and theology. We really do have the fate of the world and the species in our hands. And each of us who's alive today is a protagonist in that story, making choices, political and otherwise, that are going to determine that future. That's just incredible drama. Um, and so in addition to fear, I was sort of woken up by the sense of that scale of that story. And as a storyteller, the need to share that sense of drama with, you know, any reader who would have me basically.
0: So your book is, is heavy duty and you, you write that it's, it's a synthesis and it looks at kind of the, the second half of the bell curve, kind of the, the, the uh, more damaging, perhaps less probable outcomes. How do you sit with that and, and hold that darkness without getting sucked into it? Because I've seen people like, I would say, you know, Jim Hansen spent so much time looking at dark models that he kind of got, he got pretty dark and, and dour himself. You know, how do you prevent yourself from being consumed by the darkness that you're trying to share with us?
3: Yeah. I mean, part of it is living myself a bit in denial and complacency and, um, and compartmentalization. And I think probably that's going to be a human response to this kind of suffering, um, no matter how much of it unfolds, which is, a a tragedy and something we should fight against. But I also think it's in ways kind of inevitable. But, you know, I also try to remember that um, as horrifying as some of these really awful climate impacts could be, you know, if we end up on the track we're on at the end of the century, we could have twice as much war as we have today. We could have agricultural yields that are half as bountiful as the ones that we have today trying to feed 50 percent more people. We could have a global GDP that's 30 percent smaller than it would be without climate change. It's an impact that's twice as deep as the Great Depression. It would be permanent. Um, All of those places in the world would be hit by six climate driven natural disasters at once. Um, Climate refugees in the hundreds of millions, perhaps in the billions, according to the UN, you know, those impacts are horrifying. They can sound and seem paralyzing. But I also try to remember that they are ultimately a reflection of our power over the climate because The main thing that's driving climate change is human action. It's how much carbon we put into the atmosphere. We have our hands on those levers. If it is possible to get to that quite hellish four degree scenario that we're on track for, um, that is just a sign of how in control of the climate we are and therefore how much we could conceivably choose a different path should we want to. Um, Now, there are a lot of political obstacles, social obstacles, cultural obstacles that would prevent us from making different choices rapidly and really avoiding all of those outcomes. But I think we fall into a trap when we think of this story as being beyond our control, something that's unfolding without our input. The only thing that's actually driving it is our input. And um, that leads us to some complicated questions about who we are and what our inputs are and um, who's making these decisions. And, um, you know, again, those are really complicated questions. But pulling back and adapting a kind of global perspective, um, if we find ourselves living in a climate dystopia, it will be because of human action. And to me, that's an argument for more action in the other direction now. And ultimately, it's a kind of perversely empowering perspective.
0: David Wallace-Wells, author of The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming, speaking at Climate One earlier this year. As his book makes clear, the risks of inaction on climate are high which can lead to a paralyzing fear. What's needed, according to climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, is rational hope. Rational in understanding the magnitude of the problem, but hopeful in being motivated by the vision of a better future. Catherine is director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University and winner of last year's Stephen H. Schneider Award for Outstanding Science Communication. At the ceremony on the Climate One stage, she addressed some of the biggest myths about climate change.
1: The biggest myth that the largest number of people have bought into, people who disagree with the science and people who agree with the science, is the myth that the impacts don't matter to me. They're about future generations or the polar bear, or people who live far away. But the solutions do matter to me, and I don't like them. They are going to disrupt my comfortable life. They're going to be unpleasant. They may even be punitive. They could ruin the economy. Next thing you know, the government's going to be setting my thermostat. So we view the solutions as a greater threat than the impacts, whereas in actual fact, it's exactly the opposite. There are many beneficial solutions that can increase the quality of life, but the impacts are here today and they're bad.
0: And you also talk about, uh, you know, we're in this post-fact world uh, climate. There's lots of facts flying back and forth and talk about the importance of facts and identity.
1: When you ask people, do you agree with the simple facts that climate is changing, humans are responsible, and the impacts are serious, the number one predictor of whether people will agree with those facts, the scientific facts that we've known that date back to the 1850s, it's not how much education people have, it's not how much they know about the science, it's not how smart they are. Actually, the smarter we are, the better we are at cherry-picking information to validate our pre-existing opinions.
0: A lot of deniers are highly intelligent.
1: Yep. The single most important predictor is simply where we fall on the political spectrum. So it has become a matter of identity to say, oh, I don't agree with all that stuff. And that's why, again, it's so important to begin our conversations with identity, with a value, with a part of people's identity that they already have, that is good, that we can honestly at least... Um, admire if not actually you know agree with and share and then from that position of shared values walk together connecting the dots to why since we are both the type of person who cares about you could both be hunters or birders or hikers you live in the same place or you care about your kids or um, you know you served in the armed forces or you go to a similar type of church or You know there's a million points of connection that you could have the point is making that shared connection first and then walking together to connect the dots to why both of you because you are that same type of person who shares that same interest or value would naturally care about a changing climate
0: a lot of the climate conversation is voluntary virtuous restraint less meat less air travel a little more of this is that going to get us there is that Necessary and insufficient, or is that kind of are we deluding ourselves to if we think that going vegan is going to create the kind of change on the scale that's
2: required?
1: Uh, No, it won't. And um, a very distant second after people who don't accept the science of climate change, very distant second, the most amount of attacks I get on social media are from vegans who think that it will solve the climate crisis. And they don't like it when I say I actually crunch the numbers on methane emissions and it won't. Does that mean it's pointless? No, it doesn't mean it's pointless. In fact, individually, depending on our lifestyle, for many of us, the most important thing we can do is eat lower down the food chain, reduce food waste, look at a plant-based diet. But individual choices are not gonna fix this thing. Depending on how you crunch the numbers, individual choices are only gonna take us 30, maybe max 40% of the way there. The bottom line is we have to completely change the way our entire society gets its energy from fossil fuels. And that means that every option has to be on the table. It is not, I will do only this and this will fix the world. There is no, I will do only this. And so that's why one of my personal favorite encouraging resources is Project Drawdown. They said correctly, there's no silver bullet, but there's a lot of silver buckshot. And they went through and they listed a hundred different solutions. And some of these solutions are very surprising. Reducing food waste is is near the top because we throw a third of our food away. Well, you know, that's something that's pretty simple that I can do personally in my life, but I can also advocate for it in the community. Education of women and girls, of course, is one of my absolute favorites on the list. There's a lot of smart soil management, putting carbon back in the soil, smart agricultural practices. And so getting back to your original question... In our community we fly a lot. For most of us the biggest part of our carbon footprint is flying. And so there's there's you know flying less, don't fly. I said, you know what? I'm not about less, I'm about smart. Let's eat smart, let's live smart, let's travel smart, let's get our energy in smart ways. Let's do this in a way that's better. It's not about returning ourselves voluntarily to medieval times, it's about moving forward into the future and to do so we have to do everything smarter, not because we have to but because we want to because it really is better for us, it's better for our health, it's better for our pocketbook, it's better for the world too.
0: Katherine Hayhoe, Director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcasts at climateone.org or wherever you get your pods. Also I'd like to share some exciting news. Climate One has been nominated for Best Green Podcast at the iHeartRadio Podcast Awards presented in Los Angeles in January. We want to thank you and iHeartRadio. Please keep writing those reviews, they really do help. Quick reminder that as a nonprofit, we rely on the generosity of individuals like you to produce these podcasts every week. We hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation to support Climate One, which will be matched up to $15,000. Go to climateone.org donate and thank you. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.